Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, uh, February the 21st, 2023. Uh, regular viewers, as opposed to listeners, will see that I'm not actually in my regular studio. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, not unconnected with a major case that's being heard at the Supreme Court, Gonzalez versus Google, uh, according to CNN, uh, the case against big tech. It's a major case. Um, and according to the Washington Post, it's one that could transform the internet, not just the internet, but the whole digital economy. Um, my guest today is a professor of law. She just has a new book out called Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in, new, in the New York Times versus Sullivan case. This isn't the same, of course, as Section 230. Uh, but uh, my guest uh, is Samantha Barbas, who's a professor of law uh, at Buffalo University, uh, University uh, of New uh, uh, who, who teaches law uh, in Buffalo, New York. Uh, and Samantha, I, I want to get to your new book, but I can't resist asking you about this Gonzalez versus Google case, which is being heard as we speak today in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I'm going to be completely honest uh, that uh, Section 230 and the issues you mentioned are a little bit beyond my expertise. I'm primarily a legal historian uh, on the history of the First Amendment, and particularly libel law, uh, which was an issue in the Times versus Sullivan case. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about the, the, the Times versus Sullivan. You don't have any opinions on Section 230? You're that much of a specialist, that narrow? Yes, uh, principally a historian. Um, Section 230, you know, of course, comes up in some of the debates around online defamation and what we can do about these problems of misinformation and disinformation online. But I prefer to leave that dialogue to the specialists on uh, contemporary law. Well, you're a specialist on uh, the New York Times versus Sullivan, this iconic case, if that's the right word to use, that defined or redefined libel law in America. Tell us about it. When was it and why is it so significant? Yeah, New York Times versus Sullivan was decided by the Supreme Court in 1964, and it's really regarded as probably the most important First Amendment case in American history. It was also critically important for the civil rights movement, as I illustrate in the book. And what I tried to do in the book was not only to tell the history of this uh, landmark case, but to also kind of make the argument that Times versus Sullivan remains critically important for the protection of free speech and the protections uh, really for the ability of journalists to report the news and to uh, hold elected officials accountable. So tell us who exactly was Sullivan and what was the case about the New York Times versus Sullivan uh, 1964 case, um, this landmark US Supreme Court decision? Yeah, so L.B. Sullivan was a police commissioner of Montgomery, Alabama, and he sued the New York Times in 1960 for libel. Uh, he claimed that the Times had defamed him when some statements ran in the Times that basically accused 
Sullivan of being complicit in brutality against civil rights protesters. So this was a moment when the civil rights movement was really taking off. And uh, Sullivan, again, claimed that these statements were false and that they were defamatory. But in reality, the statements were more or less true. And his reputation actually hadn't been harmed. Um, Sullivan brought this lawsuit as an attempt to try to shut down the New York Times and other northern media outlets that were doing a lot of reporting on civil rights. Uh, they were criticizing segregation. And so Sullivan and a number of other Alabama officials tried to weaponize libel law as a way to silence the press. It's a kind of political warfare. And uh, Sullivan won his case in the uh, Alabama trial court. He won half a million dollars. And uh, the New York Times, of course, appealed. And this went up to the US Supreme Court and resulted in this landmark ruling in 1964. How political was it? Couldn't it have worked the other way? Couldn't uh, it have been a, 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 a case about um, brought by uh, left-wing activists of one kind or another against the major publication? Or was there something inherently political about this case? From well, a right-wing point of view, given, of course, that it was uh, Sullivan was a representative of the old, unreconstructed South and was trying to force the New York Times not essentially to tell the truth. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly, you know, uh, could, could go either way. Um, I think that libel law has always been you know, political in, in the United States. There's a long history of politicians of, of all backgrounds, you know, attempting to use libel law to shut down their critics in the press, uh, whether the press be conservative or liberal or uh, whatever uh, political orientation. So libel law is not always political, but there has been a long tradition in American politics of you know, libel law being used to silence critics. What does actual malice mean? That is the title of your book. How is that connected? Yeah, so actual malice is the rule or standard that was created by the Supreme Court in the Sullivan case. So uh, the Supreme Court said that in order for a public official or a public figure uh, to win uh, a libel suit uh, against a critic uh, of their conduct, um, they're going to have to show that the statement was false, the defamatory statement was false, and that it was made with actual malice. So they need to show that the speaker made the statement either knowing that it was false or with reckless disregard of the truth. So essentially having serious doubts about the truth of a statement and going ahead and publishing it anyway. And what was the state of the law before then, the, the, the Sullivan case? Yeah, libel laws were very strict. Uh, they were very much weighted in favor of the person bringing the lawsuit. Uh, there uh, were no protections, uh, no First Amendment protections for speakers in libel law. And it was very easy for a politician who didn't like something that the press had said about him uh, to sue for libel and to win, even if the statements were more or less true. So it essentially enabled... Um politicians if they had the resources to shut the press up. Yes, and there are many examples of that in history. Can you give me some of those examples of, of ways, uh, uh, you know, thinking of Citizen Kane, William Randolph Hearst, 
where they're very powerful figures historic in American history who who shut the press up, who, who scared them because of these strict libel laws? Um, you know, I tried to research that in some uh, previous work of mine, and I uh, found, uh, of course, these large high-value libel suits brought by political figures against the press. It's often very difficult to know how those cases actually ended up uh, because a lot of them don't make it into the court records and newspapers historically have not kept their uh, archives of you know how they deal with these cases uh, open to the public. Uh, but I do know you know that the, that there are uh, in numerous instances, particularly uh, I think in the early 20th century, uh, there was a very strong tradition of, of wielding libel law as a political weapon. But there are no very prominent cases in the early 20th century of uh, successful uh, lawsuits against newspapers, which perhaps bankrupted newspapers. I'm thinking of how Peter Thiel um, bankrupted some of the online publications through various legal maneuvers uh, a few years ago. Yeah, I think uh, in some of the earlier research I've done, you know, there, there were small newspapers in particular were very much uh, threatened uh, by these uh, libel suits and threats of libel. And so it would really have, you know, uh, made sense for a small, you know, not very profitable newspaper to avoid any kind of critical coverage of a powerful official who might retaliate with a libel suit. Do you think that the, the decision in 1964 enabled in some ways the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement? Had that not happened, do you think it might have been more of a struggle? Absolutely. Uh, I've spoken to uh, lawyers and journalists who were around at the time of the Sullivan decision, and they say that that Supreme Court decision and the protection for the press that it offered really kind of liberated the newsroom. Uh, it permitted journalists to conduct investigative journalism, to do critical reporting, you know, the reporting on uh, the Vietnam War, uh, reporting on Watergate, and uh, really kind of enabled this robust discourse that we have today around uh, political issues and enabled the rights of dissenters to speak and to have their messages carried in the press. Thinking of Watergate, we've done a number of shows on that. Uh, I, I'm guessing that Nixon might have uh, used the law to certainly shut the Washington Post up. He threatened them. Had it not been for this case, do you think we may not have had Watergate? Um, I, I not sure that we wouldn't have had Watergate, but uh, it is clear that Times versus Sullivan emboldened the press, right? The press has used it as a shield. Uh, it has uh, used it, uh, you know, to protect itself from these retaliatory politicians. So uh, I think, you know, in part, you know, Watergate could be attributed to uh, the ruling in Sullivan. How does it play out more broadly outside newspapers with magazines and book publishers, uh, Samantha, is it, did it take the shackles off book publishers, for example, who wanted to publish books about uh, race and the South? Um, I have not studied uh, the effects on book publishing that extensively, but the protections of New York Times versus Sullivan really apply you know, to, to any speaker, uh, not just the press. Of course, libel cases are most associated with journalism, right? Journalists, uh, newspapers tended to be the most typical uh, defendants uh, in libel cases, but really Sullivan's protections are extensive for anyone who, who wants to speak.
Do you think it changed the, the culture of journalism in America? Uh, my understanding is that under JFK, for example, there was an unspoken agreement that the press wouldn't write about his extramarital affairs. Certainly under FDR, there was an unspoken arrangement that, um, uh, that the press wouldn't cover the fact that he was disabled. Um, did it formalize the relationship between press and politicians and perhaps in an odd way actually corrode them as they move forward? Well, there have been some who have argued that, you know, the press has uh, abused the freedom that the Supreme Court gave it in New York Times versus Sullivan, right, that it's sort of uh, run amok, uh, that it's no longer a following journalistic ethics because it has this very wide uh, scope of, of freedom under the First Amendment. And, and I'm not sure that that's entirely true. Um, but, you know, there are some have, who have said, you know, this Freedom of the press has you know, corroded uh, the culture of the media. It has um, led the media to uh, not uh, adhere to ethics and to not respect the truth and not respect people's right to their reputation. And again, I, I you know, these are criticisms uh, of the press that often arise in conjunction. Well, what do you think? You've written the book about it. You've written an, an actual malice. Do you think there's some truth to it? I mean, there was and uh, maybe this doesn't reflect well on the press, a gentleman's agreement, and it tended to be a male one because, of course, at that time, most of the prominent journalists, maybe even today, were male. But this sort of wink-wink relationship with politicians that they wouldn't reveal their private lives. And now we live in an age where there's this obsession with the private lives of the rich and famous and, and politicians, of course. Yeah, and I think there are many, you know, social and cultural factors behind these shifting attitudes towards privacy, uh, you know, what the public is willing to tolerate, what the public wants to read. I think New York Times versus Sullivan is probably a factor in that, but I would hesitate to say that that's responsible for this, you know, widening um, scope of exposure in the media. What impact did the case have on the New York Times? People talk about it as the old lady of gray old lady, I think, of, of, of American journalism. It's taken as the voice of American journalism these days, although not everyone loves the newspaper. Did it change the paper? Did it make, did, did it establish the Times as the leading newspaper in America? Yeah, so um, by this time, the New York Times was already established as the newspaper of record, you know, very respected for its commitment to truth. Uh, and it's very sort of uh, respectable tone. Um, but it's interesting, what happened to the New York Times in this lawsuit, actually the series of lawsuits that were brought by these segregationist officials, is that the Times literally uh, faced possibility of bankruptcy. Uh, if these libel suits had not been essentially reversed by the Supreme Court, um, the Times was going to be in serious financial trouble. It was paying a lot of money for the defense of these libel suits. It was also altering its news coverage. Uh, it was taking reporters out of the South, out of Alabama, because it didn't want to incur any of these, you know, any more of these massive libel suits and libel judgments. So it was really kind of an existential threat for the Times, the series of uh, libel cases. Um, but you know, ultimately, the, the Times prevailed and it changed the law for all uh, publishers you know, after 1964. Ben Bradley um, became this 
again, legendary figure during Watergate, all the president's men, he strongly featured. The Grahams, of course, owned the newspaper. Were there particular heroes in the Times? This was, at that point, a Salzburger-owned newspaper. Were there members within the family who were willing to take the stand who said, we're just... This, this is too important to, 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 to buckle and, and do what, uh, what, what, uh, what we don't want to do? Yeah, um, there was a longstanding uh, policy uh, at the New York Times prior to the 60s that they would never uh, settle a libel case, right? They didn't want to be seen as, you know, somehow weak and, you know, a prey to those who might bring uh, spurious libel suits. Um, but uh, when, you know, the Times faced a series of libel suits brought by the segregationists, there was some, you know, internal debate, you know, maybe, maybe we should just settle all of this. Uh, the law was not on their side, right? The law had always been weighted very much in favor of uh, those bringing the libel suits. And so there was a kind of intense internal discussion. Are we going to try to appeal this up to the Supreme Court? Are we going to ask the Supreme Court to fundamentally change the law of libel and the First Amendment. And ultimately, that decision uh, was made by some of the, the executives of the Times and the lawyers uh, of, of the Times and resulted in this groundbreaking appeal. Um, one of the interesting things on the Gonzalez Google case today is how the left and the right uh, on the court may actually come together in opposition to Google. It seems as if Alito and Thomas are sympathetic to Gonzalez, and perhaps there'll be others on the left. Uh, of course, the Supreme Court now is much more weighted to the right. Tell us a little bit about the Supreme Court in 1964 and how this must have been seen at the time as a highly political case that reflected the politics of the court, which, for better or worse, are always a reality. Yeah, so this was... Uh brought before the court in uh, 1964. And this was really a kind of the, the height of the civil rights movement. And this is the Warren Court. Uh, this is the court that has decided a number of very important uh, desegregation decisions in the uh, previous decade. And a court that is also very uh, sympathetic to freedom of speech. Um, so there was really not a lot of debate on the court about which way this case would go. It was very obvious, uh, you know, that this uh, needed to go in favor of the, the New York Times and freedom of the press, uh, not only because of the First Amendment principle at stake, but also because the court knew that this would be very important for the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement very much needed uh, press coverage to carry its message to the public. And if this case had gone in favor of Sullivan, it's quite possible that the press reporting on civil rights would have been quashed with serious impacts on the ability of the civil rights movement to move forward. So uh, the Supreme Court was fully behind uh, the ruling uh, for the New York Times, and there were only some minor debates among the justices about the particular legal rule that would be applied. Samantha, of course, Roe versus Wade has been in the news enormously. It's not just a legal issue. It's become a broad cultural and political one. Was this ruling uh, reported on? I mean, obviously, newspapers had a particular interest in it. But was this uh, case a major political event? Was it reported extensively? Was it featured on television? 
You know, I think that the importance of New York Times versus Sullivan really has grown over the years. I think in 1964, you know, there were a number of other uh, political issues and civil rights, et cetera, that was sort of competing for the public's attention. Uh, of course, the decision was publicized, but it wasn't seen at the time uh, as groundbreaking and as important as it would later uh, be assessed to be. So what happened in the meantime, why why is it now a bigger deal than it was at the time? Yeah, so I think we've seen increasing uh, criticism of the New York Times versus Sullivan doctrine, uh, particularly since 2016. Uh, Trump made this pretty famous statement that he wanted to try to open up libel law to make it easier for him and his allies to sue the press for libel and win lots of money. And ever since then, there's been sort of a conservative attack on New York Times versus Sullivan. And uh, this is actually resulting in efforts to get a case before the Supreme Court that would invite it to uh, reconsider and possibly overrule New York Times versus Sullivan. Is there, I mean, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm sure you're no great fan of Donald Trump and nor am I, but he, he may have, in all fairness, he may have an argument on the actual malice front. I mean, clearly he's somebody who's loathed by all the major newspapers, even conservative ones like the Wall Street Journal. At what point can you prove actual malice? I mean, there's an obsession in the media, television, newspapers, radio, uh, with with Trump and with exposing his various crimes and misdemeanors, how do you actually prove malice? Yeah, so actual malice is a uh, sort of term of art in the law. It's not really uh, the most uh, accurate term because we think of malice, we think that that means ill will, but that's not actually what's meant by actual malice in the libel context. So to show actual malice, you need to show that the speaker or the journalist made the statement either knowing that it was false or, again, with reckless disregard of the truth. So really having strong reason to believe that something is false, right? entertaining serious doubts about the truth of the statement and publishing it anyway. So it would be as if uh, you know, a reporter had a very serious, very strong information before him suggesting that a story or an assertion was untrue and chose to ignore that and then went ahead and published the statement anyway. Wouldn't Hyde, and I know Hunter Biden now, I think is, is suing on this front, but wouldn't Hunter Biden have a case with Fox News and some of the other right wing uh, media platforms? You know, even, I, even in the in the context of uh, the current law of you know, I haven't been following uh, that story that closely, so I'll hesitate to comment on that. Have there been cases where actual malice has been proved since Sullivan versus New York Times? Sure. Yeah, I think there's this kind of myth that libel law is dead in the United States and that the actual malice standard makes it impossible for a public official or public figure to win a libel case. And uh, that is certainly not true. Uh, there was a uh, lawsuit involving uh, Rolling Stone magazine that you may remember about five years ago 
that involved a administrator uh, at the uh, University of Virginia who uh, essentially sued uh, the Rolling Stone over some allegations that uh, she had been sort of negligent in dealing uh, with complaints about uh, sexual assault on campus. Uh, at any rate, I mean, it is possible to show that a journalist really did um, have this evidence of uh, something being untrue or being very, very sketchy and then going ahead and uh, publishing that anyway. So it's not impossible. How does this play out, Samantha, internationally? I know that British libel law, for example, is much stricter. Europe more generally, I think, it's, it's, it's much harder to protect yourself against... Uh, the legal suits of, of wealthy, powerful people. Is, does America have, the mo and I use this word carefully, maybe it's not the right word, the most liberal libel law now after Sullivan uh, versus the New York Times? Yes, uh, I think that uh, the United States does have the most uh, speech protective uh, regime uh, of libel law uh, in the world, at least one of the most speech protective regimes. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting to think about uh, what factors uh, led that uh, to be. Uh, certainly there's legal factors, but probably also cultural and political factors as well. Well, how does this play out, though? You, you, you declined to articulate your, your view on, on the Section 230 case that's being heard today. But how does this play out in the Internet age when newspapers are essentially platforms and Facebook and Twitter become platforms where anyone can express themselves and anyone can insult anyone else and essentially get away with it. How does uh, Sullivan versus New York Times impact on platforms like Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, so uh, again, without uh, getting into uh, Section 230, uh, I, I know that you know those platforms uh, cannot be liable for the comments of uh, third party users. Uh, but if somebody, you know, defames you through Twitter or some other uh, online media, you can go after that person. I think if you could, if you can locate them, uh, if it would be worth your while uh, to sue them, it's certainly possible to bring a lot. You can sue, the, the point of Section 230 is you can sue the person insulting you on Twitter. You mm -hmm. can't sue Twitter. Um, and how did that play out in terms of Sullivan and the New York Times when it came to the individual journalists? Were they the ones being sued by the, the police officer in Montgomery, Alabama, or was it the Times itself? Yeah, the Times as an entity uh, was uh, sued by the segregationist officials in the Sullivan case. But given how media has changed so dramatically since 1964, in particular with the internet and Section 230, I know it's not your expertise, but it's still very central to these issues. Isn't there a need to rewrite perhaps Sullivan versus the New York Times and the Section 230 uh, issue all in the context of these new digital realities, for better or worse? Yeah, yeah. And I think that there are kind of two separate, although interrelated debates going on right now. One is what to do about Section 230, whether to retain it, you know, again, in light of this rampant defamation and disinformation online. And then there's also this question of, do we want to retain New York Times versus Sullivan? And some 
critics of Sullivan, I think including uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, have brought up this argument that we live in very different times, you know, compared to 1964. It's very easy to defame someone on social media. And the defamation in some ways is sort of more powerful, right? Things online, you know, stay there forever. It's very hard to counter them with counter speech. Um, and maybe, you know, for these reasons, um, we need to really overhaul the libel regime that was created in the 1960s to meet these new technological realities. And do you agree with Gorsuch? I mean, I assume he's relatively a centralist in the, on the Supreme Court. I mean, if he feels that, Kavanaugh must do, certainly Alito and Thomas. Um, isn't there a strong likelihood, given the, the right would shift in the court, that this is going to be an issue that will be dredged up? Yeah, there has been a lot of talk about whether uh, the court is going to try to make any alterations to the Sullivan line of cases. Uh, there are two justices right now who have expressed pretty strong opinions on Sullivan. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas would vote, I think, to overrule New York Times versus Sullivan if uh, given the opportunity. Uh, Gorsuch uh, has suggested that he wouldn't overrule Sullivan itself, but he might uh, vote to alter some of these extension cases in which the Supreme Court extended the Sullivan Actual Malice Doctrine to libel cases involving public figures. Uh, Sullivan dealt only with public officials. But beyond that, I don't think we know what the other justices think about New York Times versus Sullivan. So it's really an important and kind of open question, you know, how they would vote if they were uh, given the opportunity to look at this doctrine again. It's interesting to think about how it plays out politically, whether it's the left or the right who are most troubled by uh, Sullivan versus the New York Times. I can see arguments both on the left and the right. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at the criticism of Sullivan over 1964, it has really come from uh, both sides. Um, you know, some of the arguments have been explicitly political, you know, Trump, so forth. But there have also been these kind of principled criticisms of Sullivan. First, that the doctrine doesn't give enough protection to reputation, which is a critically important right, right? We should all have a right to have our good names, not unfair. Right, especially since uh, we've had authors uh, on the show talking about living in what we, what they call at least the reputation economy. Once your reputation is destroyed, that's it. You have no value. Right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, one criticism is, you know, that there's not enough protection of her reputation. And another criticism is that this doctrine just doesn't do enough to deter the spread of falsehoods because under Sullivan, falsehoods are protected to a significant extent. Um, so, you know, this criticism of Sullivan is kind of been across the board. You know, maybe it's not contributing to the kind of um, culture of civility or, uh, you know, commitment to truth that we'd ideally like to cultivate in uh, our society. Well, finally, Samantha, you've been very scholarly, very fair, but I assume you like New York Times versus um, Sullivan. You approve of the ruling and you think that it's an important piece of the law. I'm guessing you're not in favor of dramatically changing it. Is that fair? Yes, I think New York Times versus Sullivan has struck the right balance between the protection of freedom of speech and the protection of reputation. And I think that without it, uh, there would be a tremendous chilling effect on uh, journalism and free speech more generally.